0: Welcome to the 377th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with New York Times best-selling writer Dean Koontz. Kuntz's latest novel, The Other Emily, is now on sale. Stay tuned for my interview with Dean Kuntz. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is bestselling writer Dean Koontz. For most people, Dean doesn't need an introduction. His books are published in 38 languages, and he has sold over 500 million copies of his books to date. 14 of his novels have risen to number one on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list, making him one of only a dozen writers ever to have achieved that milestone. And 16 of his books have risen to the number one position in paperback. I've interviewed Dean twice before on the podcast in episodes 214 and 263. I encourage listeners to check out those earlier interviews. Dean, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me here three times. Wow, I haven't burned out my welcome. That's amazing.
0: If someone hasn't heard about your new novel, The Other Emily, yet, how would you describe the novel? Well,
1: uh, let me tell you how I describe it by how it came to me. Uh, ideas come to you in various ways, uh, and sometimes you know where they come from, and sometimes you don't. Uh, in this case, I. But what if some guy had found the love of his life at the age of 25 and then had lost her uh, when she became the victim of a serial killer and her body was never found? Uh, And it started with that. And I thought, well, that's not a novel, but it's an interesting situation. His guilt and his grief and his guilt because he should have been with her that night and was not. uh, So he spent 10 years in a state of guilt and grief. And where would he be? Well, that's still not a story. But then I thought, what if one night he walks into a restaurant or a bar and there she is sitting at the bar. She looks exactly like Emily, but she's not one day older or apparently. She still looks 25, 10 years later. And when he sits beside her and says, where have you been? She makes a joke about it and says, that's one of the worst pickup lines I've ever had. Where have you been all my life? He said, no, no. Where have you been? They engage in a conversation. I didn't know what that would be. And she intrigues him. She's obviously teasing and playing. And he decides, this is Emily. But how can she exist? And that was where the story began. I didn't know where she could have been for 25 years why she hadn't aged. And Then I thought the serial killer has killed a lot of people. Bodies have been found, but there are 12 or 14 or whatever that he has not told anyone where they are. And he says, I have preserved those girls to reanimate them. When I get out of prison, they'll be my new hero. And that of course drives the uh, RV into some sort of obsession, uh, How could that be possible? Where has she been? If she died uh, and has come back, what is she? If she never died, where has she been? That's sort of where the story began, and uh, I never know where it's going. I just keep pounding away and having fun at trying to find out where it's going.
0: Well, I I was curious about that, um, and specifically about your writing process. And I know you've written two nonfiction books about writing. I'm curious, you said that you don't know where it's going. So what is the process for you? When you're writing, are you thinking ahead about the plot? Can you kind of give us a little bit of information about how that works for you?
1: Well, I sort of focus on each page for 10, 20, even more drafts before I move to the next. So I go through the book and find of glacial pace, which gives me a lot of time for the subconscious more than the conscious, to be thinking about what comes next. What my conscious mind generally does is think about, uh uh-oh, you get to a certain point of so many pages, 30 or 40, and you see where the next 20 are going, and you see some kind of problem. Oh, so how do I explain that? Or how do I get past that obstacle? Uh, then if it takes you a while to get there, the subconscious seems always to have worked it out. You get to that place and you have sometimes two and three ways to go from there. And it's always miraculous to me because I started out many years ago writing outlines for every novel. And I finally stopped that when I wrote Strangers, which was the first book I ever had that was a hardcover bestseller. And after that, I said, okay, no more outlines because I think I will do a more organic interest in the story if I just let it go where the events and the characters take it. It's a very strange process, but it works for me. I know it doesn't work for everybody. Some people have to have those outlines. Uh, And so I'm not saying uh, this is the way to do it for everybody. But for me, it keeps it alive, keeps it so that I wonder what's going to happen next. So I remain intrigued in the story. One of the great dangers is you get deep into the story and you have no idea what will happen next. And that would be a disaster. And I've had that once or twice where I got a lot of stuff written and didn't know what to do with it. But generally speaking, it always works out.
0: And and I'm curious, with the process that you just described, do you ever find yourself, in effect, riding yourself into a hole? Do you ever have to go back and, and rework scenes or throw things out? Or or is it what you were saying, that you you move at a slow pace so that when you get to that 25 pages and that plot problem that you've been working on has kind of worked itself out?
1: It's um- – Sometimes you have to go back, frequently actually, you may have to go back if you work this way, but what you have to go back for is often things that, this is also a little difficult for me to explain, but uh, at times things happen in a story, and you stop and look at them and say, why am I doing that? Uh, For instance, you give a, I did this recently, I had a 65-year-old man in this, Novel was the grandfather of the female lead, but he's a very active role in the story. It's a book I'm working on now, and for some reason, uh, he seems like everybody's grandfather. Except you know that he has some kind of past. Right? When our hero asks him, "What did you used to do?" He said, "Well, I was something, and then I was something else, and then I was something that we don't talk about." Uh oh, are we still on?
0: Yes, yes, I can hear you. Yep. My screen went
1: blank, so I didn't know.
0: Okay, yeah, uh, I can still hear you. <laughs> okay.
1: And uh, so because he had that kind of odd reaction, well, I was something, and then I was something, and then I was something else we don't talk about. You know, he was into all sort of shadowy things, probably on the military end of things. Uh, and so at some point, I put gave him little tattoos on his earlobes that are skulls. <laughs> And I thought, well, why do that? And I, I, it's one of those things you do. and Sometimes 50, 80, 100 pages later, it pays off. If it doesn't pay off, as in this case, it didn't yet, then you go back and take the tattoos off his ears. Uh, so there <laughs> are those little things that you do to uh, conform it as the story develops in ways you didn't see it coming. But generally, there aren't giant problems. I don't go back and take out pages and pages.
0: Well, well, I'm, I'm curious, um, is this a process that you've just developed over the years and, and, and given your success and given the, the number of novels you've written, have you just gotten comfortable in, in kind of your creative process so that you kind of trust your, your gut, so to speak?
1: That, that's pretty much it, yeah. Although, I will say the first time I ever did this was, as I said, with Strangers which is a large novel, a quarter of a million words or more, and uh, has many, many characters that interact with each other. And when I delivered it, the publisher said, well, uh, we, we love this book, but only if you take forty, per, cut 40% of it. And I was mystified. I said, I can't cut 40% of it. And they said, Oh, yes, it's easy. You can just, you have so many characters, just cut five or six of them (laughs) and tie the other ones together uh, because you have all these different points of views and you don't necessarily need them. And then they brought in an editor from the literary fiction world to edit the book with me. And after spending, I don't know, six weeks reading and rereading it, he sent me his cuts. And they amounted to 10 pages out of 900 and so. <laughs> and uh, his cover letter said, I've shown you how to cut 10 pages. Now, just find the other 390. Uh, and he was joking, <laughs> of course. His point was, actually, this can't be cut. Uh, the publisher still thought it could and wrestled with me a while. And finally, admitted it couldn't. So even in that first time I did it, I was kind of confident that this worked. Uh, that even though it had not this really massive book uh, and had so many uh, storylines in it, it still worked. I've had times where partway through a book and you wonder if you should have outlined this. But the more I've done it, the right task that I've become more comfortable with, yes, I
0: certainly did.
1: Uh, but I was sort of comfortable with it from the
0: beginning. Gotcha. Well, do you ever sit down at the keyboard and the words aren't flowing? And what do you do on a day like that? You still sit there.
1: Uh, it's There are days when you have a, you're have very productive. In fact, you turn out too many pages. You turn out 10, 12 pages, and they all look good to you. And then you say, well, I can't possibly turn out that many pages in one day that are at the level I want them to be. Then you go back the next day which I always start the day uh, reading yesterday's work. And I'm sure that I'm going to make enormous changes and find out, no, I can't. And in fact, I don't even find any typos. Uh, and those are wonderful days. But then you have days where you sit there in the same 10 hours, which is the kind of day I've in, And you're lucky to get a page out uh, or some days less. And there's no way to control the flow turn it up or turn it down just is what it is um, and that's those are frustrating days I had a friend, a little side story who was an editor of mine in the days, paperback days and he had written a couple of novels for young adults uh, and he decided to quit his job as an editor and go as a full-time writer and after a year or two I noticed he wasn't talking about what he had sold or anything. <laughs> and I was on the phone with him and I said, uh, well, uh, what have you done? It was the end of the year. What have you done this year? He said, well, I haven't written much of anything. He said, I try. I get up in the morning and I get to work at seven o'clock. But if I don't have anything by nine, then I know I'm not going to get anything written. I quit for the day and the week. And I said, well, you know, Bob, you love to read. So all you're doing is rewarding yourself uh, for not writing. Uh, Oh, I can't write. I'll go read. That's not a punishment. That's a reward. Uh, And he turned out to have read 200 books that year. And uh, ultimately, he couldn't break that habit. And I said to him, look, I sit there sometimes five, six hours, and I get two sentences that I can live with. And suddenly, in the next four hours, I get four or five pages. You never know when that's going to happen. Uh, But he just locked himself into that negativity. And you've got to avoid that or you really will never get anything.
0: Sure. Well, what keeps you excited about writing novels?
1: I've written so many. uh, And I try as best I can, not to repeat myself. I'm always looking for something I haven't done before. The other Emily, the new one, come out, coming out uh, on the 23rd of March, is totally different. Um, and uh, sometimes publishers don't like that, uh, especially when you're young and they're trying to, they think you're building a career. They think the only way to do that is keep writing the same thing over and over so the audience knows exactly what to expect. I've found that the more differences I do, the more ways I vary my production, the more enthusiastic the audience gets. Uh, So I've never backed away from that. Uh, And as long as I can find something new and different to do, it excites me and so far ahead, uh, then I think that's what keeps you fresh, a challenge you haven't met before. And now, can I do this or will I just fall flat on my face? if you do that high wire sort of act with yourself, it keeps you engaged.
0: Well, when you think about your writing and storytelling career now, is there any advice that you would give a young Dean Koontz when you were sitting down at your electric typewriter in Pennsylvania and working on science fiction novels and stories?
1: I would have, I would have probably said to myself, uh, think bigger sooner. Uh, I I started out so young selling a short story when I was in college uh, My first novel was actually written a year or 10 years after I got out of college. Uh, and I was writing what I had mostly written as an adolescent, young adult. Uh, and that was science fiction. Uh, what, and I stayed with it too long. I wrote a lot of science fiction novels. And the problem with that was, it, as much as I loved it as a reader, it wasn't what I was born to write. And it took me a long time to figure that out. And a part of the reason I couldn't figure it out was that I was underestimating what I could do. And when I finally shifted from science fiction, I wrote a comic novel. And it was very successfully reviewed, but it didn't sell. So I bailed out of comic novels. I mean, it's sold to a publisher, but not much to the public. Mm-hmm. I bailed out of comic novels and went to the kind of suspense that was the equivalent of the science fiction I was writing. It was less ambitious. It was uh, sort of short, you know, 60,000 word novels or slightly longer. And uh, uh, it took me a long time to get up the courage to try something more complex and bigger. And I was too satisfied with the mere fact of publishing at all. And if I'd have younger said, okay, let's try something more ambitious, I think I could have still done it younger and the crew would have been much better earlier than it was. So I often say to young writers that uh, when, they, when they actually ask me, uh, what am I doing wrong or why isn't this breaking through? My advice often is think bigger. Think of a kind of story that requires you to stretch to things you can't imagine yourself doing. And that's really what I did with strangers. The idea of writing a book that with that many viewpoints of people in various walks of life that I knew nothing about and would have to research is what finally started bringing me through. And thinking in that bigger sense is what most young writers are at
0: Gotcha. That sounds like great advice. Well, you've mentioned before that you use a very old word processing system on your computer uh for your writing. Is that still the case?
1: No, I have <laughs> I <I've> come <laughs> into the new century. Uh it's uh I'm I'm up to date now. Or I may not be, be using am I using no. no. Yes, I am. I'm using uh my assistant says, Yes, I'm using the most up to date Microsoft. Word. <laughs> and I've got a nice big screen. And uh, you know, I remember when uh, CBS Sunday morning came and spent a couple of days with me. Uh, and the second day they were here, it's the first day when you ran into my office. And Anthony Mason, who was the uh, interviewer, walked into my office and looked at my old system and said, what the hell is that? (laughs) And uh, I said, well, I'm terrified of learning a new system and a new software because I don't want to be slowed down by the learning. But I've discovered I'm not slowed down by it. And in fact, speeded up by all the bells and whistles of it.
0: That's great. Well, how are you enjoying working with Amazon Publishing? It's, uh,
1: It's been... Eye-opening and, and wonderful across the board. Uh, just to give you a little history, uh, uh, they came to me uh, several years ago, Amazon Original Stories, which is a different division than the one that publishes my novels, which is Thomas and Anderson. Uh, Amazon Original Stories came and asked me to write a novelette because a number I'd written for Random House that they had published as ebooks e-book that sold several hundred thousand copies. And Amazon noticed that and wanted to give it a direct trial. I did a thing called Ricochet Joe, which did very well for us. And then they said, what about writing a series of novelettes or novelettes with the same character? And so I wrote the nameless stories, which I think are heading toward three million downloads on, on the series. And uh, uh, those have done well. I've written six more for but after I had written the six first six nameless stories, I was getting to the point where I felt that I needed a new publisher. I was a man house and I'd been for a long time. But things were not what they had once been. And no matter how much you might like the people you're working with, you don't ever know the people at the higher echelons of the company that are making the decisions that affect your career. And I knew that some things weren't right. So, my agents said, let's go out to market. We did. And they were the ones who suggested we throw Amazon in for novels. And I said, well, that's kind of strange because we won't end up in Barnes and Noble, and there's a number of independent stores along the areas. And uh, they said, yeah, well, you know, the business is changing. Let's see. I had enjoyed so much working with the people in Amazon Original Stories who were very creative and enthusiastic and efficient, I said, well, why not? And to my great surprise, Amazon equaled the best offer. We had eight offers on the, for the next series of books. And Amazon, uh, through Thomas and Mercer's, equaled the best offer. But what really impressed me was in the other cases, I either got one or two pages of a marketing plan, or I got no marketing plan along with the offer. But with Amazon, I got a 30-some page marketing plan. And I said, okay, maybe all of this is changing uh, in a way that I need to pay attention to this. And what's been so fascinating to me is that Thomas and Mercer now, they're producing beautiful books. They're well-made books. The boards of the books have wonderful decoration on them. Covers are better than they've uh, To in us attention, every little production thing. I was having problems with Books that when you open the new book it split the spine. I'm not getting that with Thomas and Mercer. I'm getting books well made and beautifully produced. And that has been a great surprise to me because uh, it just isn't what I thought. I thought this is going to be more about the ebook. So, and I'm finding everyone I'm working with very enthusiastic, creative, always looking for a new way to go. And think about women. They just redesigned my website, which looks spectacular. So I, I have to say I've been in somewhat of a couple of years of shock. that This has gone as well as it has. Um, that At this point in my career, I'm saying, okay, I'm perfectly happy. We're doing very well in the numbers when um, and, uh, and that's part of what matters because you got into this to communicate. And, uh, and you want to reach as many people as you can. At this point in my career, it's not about finances so much as it is simply communication.
0: That's great. Well, given your success and experience, what writing advice would you offer for those who are listening, who are working on their own stories or novels?
1: Well, it's, uh, you know, there's a tendency among people who are new writers. I won't say young writers because some new writers are forty. I always remember that, uh, some some very successful writers didn't begin until they were late in life. Uh, and so I say to new writers, whatever your age is, uh, maybe it works for a very small handful of people if you scope the market to see what is selling and then write that. But for most people, that isn't what will work. What you have to do is identify what you love the most as a reader. What enchants you the most? What dozen or 20 books you have read in your life that are the most important to you? And then think to yourself, why? What about those books matter so much? to What about those books may have changed my life or excited me or just been enormously entertaining? That sort of tells you where your heart lies. And then that's the thing you should be writing. And if nobody's publishing it, it's nevertheless what you should be writing. Because if you just scope the market and you write what everybody is publishing, so is everybody else. So you're competing with, a, with an enormous number. Of but if you write what only you are writing at the moment, what you are passionate about, it's unique, And it will either find a market or it won't. But it's more likely to find one than if you're just another of the crowd writing zombie novels or whatever. So my first advice is do what you're most passionate about. I remember when I started doing cross-genre novels, way back when nobody was doing them. Uh, uh, to say this 40-some years ago. Uh, <laughs> my publishers just were. They couldn't understand what I was doing. How can you write a suspense novel with an important love story in it? Or how can you write a suspense novel with an element of the supernatural? Or how can you write a, what amounts to a detective story with a bit of science fiction in it? Uh, it just wasn't done in those days. And yet, as books got published and the audience built, I watched as it got to be where how they're called mashups or various other things. It was something that everybody was doing, uh, and so just just stick with what. Passion tells you to write. Don't worry, what is the market for that? If you do it well, you can make a market for it.
0: That's great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed?
1: Well, uh, recently my fiction reading has been low because we've moved to a new house and it was an horrendous Tens of thousands of books. Uh, <laughs> we're still not fully unpacked and won't be for a few months. Uh, and so that threw a wrench into all my writing schedule. So most of my reading has been uh, nonfiction research for things I'm working on. And uh, uh, the, the fiction I've read recently, uh, I have a, there's a young adult writer. She's supposedly for children you in know, middle school. I don't know what ages she actually thinks she writes for, but she writes for everybody. Her name is Kate deacon And she's won all kinds of awards for her uh, non-adult children's fiction. But I've never read a book of hers that isn't also for adults. Uh, the Magician's Elephant, uh, Her in His Journey of to Tulane, uh, uh, any of her books so beautifully crafted that that, that I just kind of stand in amazement of them. Uh, So I always recommend her. uh, But most of the nonfiction I'm reading, nobody else would have any interest in it because it's so (laughs) focused on what I'm writing about.
0: Sure. Well, have you started, uh, are you working on another novel now? Yes, I'm uh,
1: working on a book that's at the moment titled Quicksilver uh and it's, it's been, it has a certain quality of, uh, life expectancy or, I think Thomas Thomas or relentless, it's got suspense, but also humor, uh, it, it's sort of suspense horror, humor, little touch of fantasy, uh, and, uh, love story as well, but it's been a challenge because, uh, well, one thing, uh, through some months of it, there's been as many as 40 or 50 tradesmen in the house pounding, drilling, slowing, and shouting back and forth to one another, <laughs> which kind of interrupts your focus. Uh, but also, uh, it, it's, we're living in a very strange and dark period in, in American history, and uh, uh, this book kind of touches on that in
2: fantasy aspect.
1: And has an element that starts to explain it a little bit in in a supernatural way, and uh, I I wonder some days whether it was a mistake to try to write a book quite this dark but also funny in a world such as the one we live in. But but I saw this little um, little quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald. It was in an essay. And it's the epigraph at the front of the novel. And it is, uh, pull up your chair close to the precipice and let me tell you the story. And I just love that. And that sort of fits what this is. It's very dark, but I, I hope it will be kind of enchanting at the same time.
0: That's great. That I'm sure people will look forward to reading that when, when you're done. Um, I can't let you go without asking, though, will we ever see a third Christopher Snow novel?
1: Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> I will explain this very succinctly if I can.
0: Okay, I, sure.
1: I wrote the first two. And I had moved Canop. after being there only three books. I had moved from Putnam. I'd gone to Canop. I liked my editor, publisher, Kanop, but there were a lot of things that I found not right, and so I moved after three books to Phantom. I didn't want to have to move again after three books. But when I delivered the second of the Chris Snow books, my publisher at that time disliked it intensely. Uh, just, just wanted the entire last third of the book changed. Everything I made a few small changes and I couldn't change the rest. And I, I knew that if I wrote the third one right then, I would need to find a new publisher because that would be all we'd be doing together. And I didn't want to have that happen. So I... I said to myself, okay, postpone that. Write a couple of other books back to it. So I wrote False Memory, uh, From the Corner of His Eye, One Away from Heaven, which were all enormous novels. And by then, it seemed like I couldn't get back to it. Then that publisher moved out. Another one came along. Didn't want to go back to something the other publisher doing. <laughs> and you get trapped in this sort of situation. Now I'm at a different publisher altogether. The first two books are trapped in another one, and to write a third book in series, it's all kind of strange because there's film interest in them now. And what I kind of say to fans: forgive me, I did that, uh, but there is no easy going back to it because the rights are tied up by people I no longer work with. But if there were, if there were movies or TV shows out of this. You've already talked to some people about where does it go in the third one and I can tell them uh, which would be fine for uh, to continue it in a film version rather than a novel version
0: gotcha well well that brings up a a, a good question um, I know that you've had mixed results over the years uh, with Hollywood and uh, I'm just curious, What what is kind of the current status? Are there any um, projects with your novels and fiction under development? Uh,
1: devoted is uh, Under Development, uh, which was the first book I published with uh, uh, Thomas and Mercer and Amazon, uh, first novel. And, uh, and we're in negotiations on a number of other projects all of a sudden. And I think what has happened is when I look at where a lot of my problems were, where uh, I had something sell to feature films or even television as, as a four-hour mini-series. My books tend to be very packed with event. Uh, there's a lot that happens in them along. And when it comes to adapting them, people in the movie business don't see how to squeeze. Enough of it into the film version, even into a four hour miniseries. The closest anybody ever came to that was the original intensity. Uh, at, uh, for Fox, that it was done okay, it was better than not. Right. But now, this new form of TV, where you get eight and ten episodes that a novel could be told in, that's kind of what I think my novels are natural for. Uh, then you can do the whole story and you don't have to think what 80% of it you would cut. So I'm sort of upbeat about that. Uh, Talk to me a year from now and I may be just as despondent as I've always been about (laughs) But right now it looks like that because when I talk to producers who are thinking this way, they really seem to get it about these books that this is their natural form and uh, that they can tell the whole story this way. And that kind of excites me.
0: That's great. Well, hopefully we'll cross our fingers that something will happen. Well, again, we've been speaking with best-selling writer Dean Kuntz. Dean's latest novel, The Other Emily, goes on sale March 23rd. You can pre-order it now, or you can buy one of many of Dean's many other novels. And Dean, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Thanks for having me there, man. You take care.
0: Great. Thank you. And now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Other Emily by Dean Kuntz, performed by McLeod Andrews, published by Brilliance Audio, and available wherever audiobooks are sold.
2: Brilliance Audio presents the unabridged recording of The Other Emily by Dean Kuntz, performed by McLeod Andrews. Though they go mad, they shall be sane. Though they sink through the sea, they shall rise again. Though lovers be lost, love shall not, and death shall have no dominion. Dylan Thomas Part One Alone Among the Millions One She is lost, and he must find her. But she leaves no trail, no footprints or spoor of any kind. And the way is dark, for she has gone into the forest of the night, where the trees are black and leafless, where the moon and stars do not exist, where the sun will never rise, where the path is ever downward. Yet he descends in a desperate search. For she does not belong here among the dead, not when she is so alive in his mind and heart. Does not belong here. Does not belong here. And although finding her is his only hope of joy, his only reason to exist, there are moments when he senses her within arm's reach in the blinding darkness, and terror wakes him. Two. Crystal confetti showered on the city. The final celebration of a winter that on this 24th day of March lingered past its official expiration date. Scarfed and booted with his topcoat collar turned up, David Thorne walked the streets of Manhattan, ostensibly in search of inspiration, but his imagination was not stimulated. The end-of-season storm lacked force. Snow spiraled through windless canyons as gray as ashes until it fell below the hooded street lamps and was bleached by the light. If inspiration was not in fact his goal, if instead he was in need of company, he found none of that either. The traffic in the streets might as well have been self-driven and without passengers, machines on errands of their own intention. Footprints patterned the inch of snow on the sidewalks. The bitter chill did not dissuade other pedestrians from being out and about, but to David they were as immaterial as ghosts. By the time he returned to his apartment, he knew that he would soon be leaving for California. That night he toured a cellar that he had never seen other than in dreams, a maze of half-lit chambers containing abominations from which he woke in a state of terror, his flesh and bones colder than the night beyond his windows. In the morning, he called his literary agent, Charlie Plackett, to say that he would be going to California for a month or two until an idea for the next novel fully gelled. I have it on my calendar for April 15th, Charlie said. Have what on your calendar? You and California. It's never been this early before. I'm not that predictable, Charlie. David, David, you're 37. I've been representing you for eight years, and every ten months, you're off to Newport Beach for a two-month retreat. Never anywhere else. It's a damn good thing your novels aren't as predictable as your travel schedule. The place inspires me, that's all. The sun, the sea. I always come back with an idea for a novel that I absolutely need to write. So why ever leave there if it inspires you that much? Some things were not for sharing, even with a good friend like Charlie Plackett. I heard it said, if I could make it here, I could make it anywhere. I ask you the same question every time, Charlie said. And you always have a different bullshit answer. I'm a writer. Bullshit is my business. Three. Newport Beach luxuriated in spring warmth when David Thorne arrived late on the afternoon of March 26th. In an otherwise clear sky, a long filigree of white clouds ornamented the West, soon to be gilded by the declining sun. A taxi brought him from John Wayne Airport to his home in that neighborhood of Newport known as Corona Del Mar. His cottage style single story residence stood three blocks from the beach and lacked an ocean view, but the lot was of great value. He would not have sold the place for ten times what it was worth. He had purchased the property with earnings from his first bestseller, when he'd been a 25-year-old wunderkind. He still liked its cottage charm, pale yellow stucco, windows flanked by white shutters with scalloped slats, a porch with a canary-yellow swing. The house was shaded by palm trees and skirted with hibiscus, soon to be laden with huge yellow flowers. A property management firm maintained the place in immaculate condition and also looked after his SUV, a white Porsche Cayenne. They would have rented the house when David was in New York, but he didn't allow it to be occupied by others. In spite of its humble style and dimensions, it was something of a shrine. The urge to return had overcome him in January, but that would have been only seven months since his previous visit, which felt wrong. Self-restraint was required. Always, after he flew back to New York on landing at the airport, he was seized by a desire to return at once to Newport. He had not yet visited twice in the same year, but he kept the cottage vacant in case one day he could not resist the pull this property exerted on him. Sometimes he thought he should never have left. Maybe he would be happiest if he lived here full time. But intuition argued that to make this his only home would put at risk not just what qualified contentment he had found in the past ten years, but also his sanity. He understood that, in his case, creative talent was twined with a tendency to obsession. He needed to stay in touch with this place, this important period of his past. But if he didn't resist its attraction, he would be consumed by it. The time he spent here began in denial and hope. But week by week, the denial gave way to guilt and the hope melted into sorrow. After he had unpacked, he stood for a while staring at the queen-size bed. Then he removed the spread and folded it and put it aside on a bench. His hands trembled when he turned back the sheets. Later, at a restaurant on the harbor, where the decor was black and silver with blue accents, full-on art deco, he had a drink at the bar and then dinner at a window table. Sailing yachts and motor cruisers plied the waters, returning from an afternoon at sea. He would dine here most nights. He always did. The food was excellent. If he drank too much, there was strong coffee or a taxi. He didn't recognize any of the staff from earlier visits. If any remembered him, they didn't say so. That was as he wanted. He preferred anonymity and had no desire to engage in conversation. At the bar, and again as he repaired to a table, an expectation overcame him. Of what, whether of good or bad, he couldn't say. Alert, he sat alone at a window table for two, surveying the other patrons. But they were as ordinary as they were well-to-do. The fleecy clouds alchemized to gold against an azure sky, and then curdled blood red against a sapphire backdrop. But it wasn't the sunset that filled him with anticipation. Gradually, his presentiment faded as the stars came out. On the dark water of the harbor, reflections of shoreside lights cockled like colorful skeins of rippled ribbon sugar candy. He and Emily had come here back in the day, when the decor had been somewhat less glamorous. But she didn't haunt this place. Only his heart. During the ten-minute drive home, he felt that the night was as incomplete as the half-moon. He dreamed of the mini-chambered cellar, that labyrinth of wickedness and cruelty. Although it was a real-world place, he had avoided watching news film of it. But his imagination took him there again in his restless sleep. So vivid were these nightmare images that when he woke at 3.15, he went into the bathroom and threw up. 4. The following evening, Thursday, the horseshoe-shaped bar was busy early, while dressed singles in their 20s and 30s were getting a buzz, and on the prowl, but not too obviously, for someone with whom to hook up. Eagerness could be easily misinterpreted as desperation. This was a moneyed crowd that associated desperation with economic rather than emotional need. The men and women alike shied from anyone whose net worth might be tied up in the clothes and jewelry they wore and who might be fishing for a catch. The bar was too crowded for David. He tipped the hostess for the window table at which he dined the previous night. She seated him and saw to it that his waiter brought a glass of Camus Cabernet by the time that he unfolded the napkin and placed it on his lap. The anticipation that had drawn his nerves taut the previous evening rose in him once more. He expected nothing would come of it. Nothing ever did. Nearby on the harbor, two twenty-ish women in bikinis standing on paddleboards oared their way past the docks, making progress so effortlessly that they were conducting an animated conversation at the same time and laughing with delight. They were beautiful and live, with tanned and silken limbs. But though they gave rise to a certain need in David, they didn't fill him with true desire. The swollen sun was still five minutes from immersion in the sea when he glanced toward the noisy bar and saw her. He froze with the wine glass halfway to his mouth and for a moment forgot that it remained in his hand. She was in that highest rank of beauties that inspired stupid men to commit foolish acts and made wiser men despair for their inadequacies. He thought he must be wrong about her. Then she looked his way and for a moment met his eyes at a distance, and he put down his glass for fear of spilling the cabernet. Her gaze didn't linger on David or on anyone. She turned her elegant head to the bartender as he placed a martini before her. Balanced on the horizon, the fat sun poured apocalyptic light through the huge tinted windows. The restaurant and bar occupied one enormous space designed to allow patrons to see and be seen by the largest possible audience. Yet as the room filled with the fantastic light of the dying day, David felt as if everyone but he and this woman had been vaporized. The sun sank, the night rose like a tide, and the restaurant dimmed to a romantic glow. Although he considered approaching the woman at the bar, he didn't dare. She surely couldn't be true. He ordered a second glass of Cabernet and the filet mignon, and he watched her surreptitiously for the next hour. She did not glance at him again. The other unescorted women at the horseshoe bar recognized impossible competition and despised this black-haired, blue-eyed beauty. A few men found the courage to approach her, but she gently turned them away with a minute of conversation and a lovely smile. To a one... They seemed to feel that a courteous rejection from her was a kind of triumph. Gradually, couples paired up and moved to dinner or departed together, and those who were unlucky either amped up their alcohol consumption or moved on to some other watering hole. She ordered a second martini and then took her dinner at the bar with a glass of red wine. She ate with an appetite and a concentration on her plate that was familiar to David. The expectation that had possessed him two nights in a row and that had been fulfilled with this woman's arrival surely counted as something more than mere hope or intuition. There seemed to be some strange destiny unspooling. He paid his check but carried his unfinished glass of wine to the bar, where he settled on the stool beside hers. She didn't so much as glance at him, but concentrated on the last of her steak. David didn't know what to say to her. His throat felt swollen, and he had difficulty swallowing. He was light with hope and heavy with a dread of disappointment. When she finished and put her fork down and took a sip of her wine, he finally said, Where have you been all these years? She licked her lips, her tongue taking extra care with the right corner of her mouth, as he had known it would. When she turned her eyes to him, they were striated in two shades of blue, as radiant as jewels. She said, I would expect a much better pickup line from a writer. His heart had felt tight, laboring as though constrained by scar tissue from an old wound. Now it slipped free of those knots and raced like the whole and healthy heart of a boy. I was afraid, afraid you'd say you didn't know me. A lot of this crowd probably doesn't read she said, but I do. I've always thought you look so different from the kind of thing you write. The buoyancy that swelled in him now diminished. That's how you know me, from book jacket photographs? She tilted her head to regard him quizzically with a half smile. Well, I didn't see you on TV. I never watch TV. Her stare was achingly familiar, not just the color of it, but the directness. You're not playing some game? He asked. Game? No. Are you? He bought a moment of silence by taking a sip of wine. I don't believe in staggering coincidences. What coincidence has just staggered you? Emily. Excuse me? Your name is Emily. My name is Madison. Madison. Then you must have a sister named Emily. I'm an only child. I never knew of a sister, he said. Because there isn't one. This is extraordinary. What is? She was too young. He saw that now. A decade too young, but otherwise a dead ringer. You're too young, he said. Though he didn't mean to express that thought aloud. She sipped her wine and propped an elbow on the bar and cupped her chin in her hand, exactly as Emily had done, and studied him for a long moment. This has become a much better pickup pitch. It was so lame at the start. Where have you been all my life? It was, where have you been all these years? Whatever. But you've polished it up considerably in subsequent drafts, adding a nice note of mystery. He felt disoriented as if he'd been folded into some universe parallel to the one in which he'd been born. Ten years. She was twenty-five when I last saw her. I'm twenty-five. But you're not Emily. I'm glad we finally agree on that. He didn't remember finishing his wine, but his glass was empty. No two people, unrelated, could look so alike. You must have an older sister you don't know about. He took his smartphone from a jacket pocket. May I take your picture? That's all you want of me? A picture? That question left him nonplussed. She said, What about your younger brother? I don't have a brother, younger or otherwise. Too bad. He might have taken me home by now. You're playing with me. Just like she did. She? Being the fabled Emily, I suppose. You wouldn't go home with me if I asked. She wasn't that easy, and neither are you. Madison shrugged. As though you know me. If all you want is a picture, go ahead and take it. He took three. What's your last name? Sutton. Madison Sutton. As he put the phone away, she said. Now what? He wasn't smooth at this, not these days, not since Emily, he said. There is an age difference. Good grief, you're just thirty-something. Thirty-seven. I'll call you Grandpa, you can call me Lolita. Okay, it's not a millennium. Will you have dinner with me? I just finished dinner, so did you. Tomorrow night. I'm free, she said. Is this place all right? It's delightfully expensive. I'll pick you up at 5.30. (laughs) Let's take it slow. I'll meet you here. A moment ago, you were ready to go home with me. Not with you, she said. With your brother. Although unnerved by a resemblance to Emily, he nevertheless laughed. Fortunately for me, I'm an only child. So you say. Most likely your brother's cuter. You even talk like her. Which is, how? Always half a step ahead of me. Do you like that? I guess I must. He wanted no more wine. She nursed the last of hers as if to avoid leaving with him and being mistaken for just another meat market matchup. He said, Well, okay then. See you tomorrow. And departed. The night was pleasantly cool. The air soft rather than crisp, appealingly scented with the faint, musky odor of the invading sea that rose and fell and rose ceaselessly within the confines of the harbor. After retrieving his SUV from the valet, David drove across Pacific Coast Highway and parked in the empty lot of a bank. He had a clear view of the restaurant. Ten minutes passed before she appeared. At the sight of her, the valet hurried to fetch an ivory-white two-seat Mercedes 450 SL. It was at least forty years old, but impeccably maintained. As she stood waiting for the car, bathed in the golden glow of the portico, she seemed to be not the subject of the light, but the source of it, radiant. The sight of her gave rise to that certain need in David, but this time also to desire. Even though she didn't know what car he drove, he dared to follow her only at a distance. Traffic remained light, and he was never at risk of losing her. He expected to be led to a house, perhaps one in a gate-guarded community. She went instead to the island hotel. From a distance, he watched her leave the Mercedes with another valet, who stood at the open driver's door to watch her until she had disappeared into the lobby. David went home and for five hours he slept as if drugged. He dreamed of searching the island hotel for Emily. The bellman wore black and carried automatic carbines and refused to help him with his luggage, which didn't matter, because he had no luggage. He wasn't checking in. He was just looking for Emily. The man at the front desk insisted that no one was currently staying in the hotel, and this proved to be true when David went room by room, floor by floor, his sense of urgency growing, seeking someone who might have seen Emily. He thought she must have gone to the bar for a drink. But the bar had been turned into an infirmary, where wounded men were stretched out on rows of cots. Although he didn't recall having been wounded, he found himself on a cot, being attended to by a nurse in a black uniform. Employing a rubber tube as a tourniquet, she used a needle to tap one of his veins and draw blood into a collection tube. Because her uniform was black rather than white, he worried that she wasn't a real nurse. But she assured him that she was a nurse and a trained phlebotomist. I have much experience of blood, she said. Only then did he realize that she was Emily. And with considerable relief, he said, At last I've found you. And she said, you won't remember this. Sleep and forget. You won't remember. Five. He woke and showered during the night. In a vague sort of way, he remembered the dream in spite of the nurse encouraging him to forget. In the crook of his left arm was a tiny red swelling, a spider bite. Having been bitten in his slumber, he had felt the nip and fashioned part of the dream around it. The sleeping mind was an inventive, if strange, playwright. Dawn had not yet broken when he imported the three smartphone snapshots of Madison Sutton to the computer in the study and printed them on glossy photographic paper. He put the photos on the kitchen table with the intention of studying them over breakfast. He drank coffee and ate nothing. The early sun had slowly moved a window shape across the table to the photographs, as if light were tropic to her sublime face. In the bedroom, he opened the bottom drawer of the high boy and took from it a 9 by 12 white box. He returned to the kitchen and opened the box and removed an assortment of pictures of Emily Carlino. He had put them away in the high boy after. She was gone. He had not looked at them in years because the sight of her caused him such pain and longing and fear. Although he spent half an hour examining the evidence, he could not see the slightest difference between Madison and Emily. They were no less alike than identical twins who had formed from one fertilized egg, sharing one amniotic sac and one placenta until they had been delivered into the world. After he fetched a magnifying glass from the study, further examination of the photos availed him nothing. Her eyes were owlish under the enlarging glass, and she met his stare with her own.